At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. In three, two, one. Catherine Cho holds her excited son while her husband assembles a toy horse. <laughs> two, two foot. Four feet. They're on four, four legs, kiddo. This happy family life seems a far cry from their lives three years ago. You traveled very far away on your horse. Uh, on your horse. You're now in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> like most first-time moms, Catherine Cho was nervous about being a mother. It's such a life-changing experience, especially for a highly accomplished literary agent who is far more comfortable managing the egos of writers than changing diapers. Catherine was 30 years old when she found out she was pregnant. And so it seemed kind of destined because my mother had been 30 when she had me, and so was my grandmother when she had my mother. All the signs in her life were saying this was meant to happen. But when Cato was born, something inside of Catherine snapped. The stress and anxiety of being a new mom triggered postpartum psychosis, something that affects almost two out of a thousand new moms. It was such a surreal experience because I basically, I went into a complete uh, mental break. Catherine went from being a quiet, self-assured, brilliant woman into something else, something that scared her. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Catherine Cho and I spoke recently on an international phone call. Catherine, hi, how's it going? Good, hi, Vic. Which, as you might notice, had a little bit of a delay. Hey, what time is it there, by the way? It's 2 p.m. Catherine was born in Kentucky to academic parents who moved there from Korea. After spending a long time in New York and Hong Kong, she settled in London with her husband, where she works as a literary agent and writer. Catherine's first book, Inferno, is a memoir about her journey into motherhood and madness. But before that descent, Catherine says she had the same positive feelings as a lot of other moms when she found out she was pregnant. You know, I felt really excited. I'd always wanted to be a parent. Um, I hadn't really given much thought to it before, but for me, it just felt just like a blessing and something that, you know, I'd always hoped for. What were your feelings uh, in the days leading up to the birth of your child? Um, it was a lot of excitement, but also anxiety. I think that's, you know, goes for almost any first time parent. You focus so much on birth and like the whole experience of birth and it's such an unknown We did all the classes, you know, I read all the birth stories. And yeah, you kind of try to prepare as much as you can, but I think you at some point have to accept that actually it's not something you can really prepare for. So he was born and you named him Cato. Yes. Where does that name come from? So that that was my husband's idea. I actually wasn't super keen on the name, but 
My husband really wanted a name that was a bit unique. And what's also nice about it is that it kind of sounds Asian, actually. But it's also Western as well, so we liked that aspect. So Cato's in your life now. Your first child. You're 30. What was life like at the beginning? How were you feeling with Cato uh, in the world? It's, everybody gets so excited when there's a new baby, and I remember, you know, we we had friends come over and hold him and going for walks with him. Yeah, it, it was a really fun and beautiful time at the beginning. Sounds like everyone's just really happy for you. And of course, you know, Kato's this beautiful boy. Um, when did you notice that you were getting stressed out and anxious about the baby? So I, I didn't really notice it until we'd made the decision to go to the U.S. So I had this idea that because we had such a long period of time for our parental leave, that we could take this long trip like a two-month trip to the U.S. Both my husband and my families they're all in the States, so we went from California to Virginia and New Jersey. And I suppose it was in the planning of it that I started noticing that I was feeling anxious just because everyone thought it was a terrible idea. They thought it was reckless. Um, Kato was only two months old, so they just thought it was a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, so it's a different layer of stress. Talk to me about Catherine when the psychosis began? So the psychosis began at the very tail end of the trip. My son was three months old at that point. We were in New Jersey. And for me, it culminated after many days of not sleeping, actually almost weeks, I suppose, of not sleeping. And just, I was at my in-law's house at this point, and it was just a constant, um, almost barrage of concern and worry and fear and it all came from a you know a place of love and it was nothing you know mm -hmm. with bad intentions but for me I, I had this conversation with my father-in-law where he was telling me about someone he knew who had shaken her baby and the baby had gone blind and mm. hearing that I immediately just felt this fear or just you know like this thought a kind of like you know would I do that is that what he's yeah. afraid that I'm going to do and when I went to go upstairs to feed my son, his face had changed at that point. So his face to me looked like the face of a devil. It's such a heavy thing to, to have in your head. So when you saw Cato and it seemed like you were seeing something else or, or someone else's face, I mean, can you describe but what you were seeing, do you still remember that? Yeah, it was very clear to me. I mean, for me, it, it looked real. You know, his face just did not look like his face. He was looking at me, I thought, with fear. His eyes had changed. My brain was trying to understand that this was what was happening, and I, I couldn't accept it. But I also couldn't disbelieve what I was seeing. It was a very strange experience. What happened next? So I immediately panicked. I really felt like something really bad was going to happen. And I just had this sense of everything was shaking. And, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening, but I just knew that if I stayed in that house, something bad was going to happen. And so I just told my husband that, you know, I needed him to trust me and to believe everything I was saying. I really just kind of clung to him in that sense. I just told him I needed to leave the house. So he packed everything up. We went to a hotel nearby. I suppose 
But at that point, it, it just really escalated and got so much, so much worse. At that point, I started losing a sense of time. So time was no longer linear to me. I, I was, I thought we were stuck in this hotel room as almost like a simulation. And I kept seeing us trying to leave and not being able to leave. And I was hearing voices and seeing figures kind of running around the room and leaving. And my husband was trying to get me to sleep. So I slept kind of, but didn't. And at that point I thought I was hearing the voice of God. Um, and I thought God was basically telling me that my whole life was actually a simulation, that I was in hell, I had died, that my husband was Dante. Wow. Yes, and that I was Beatrice, so I was the one who had to lead him through the circles of hell. Oh my gosh. Yes, so at that point, in a way, it felt almost a relief because it kind of made sense. Like to me, it, it, at least it seemed to me in my state that it made sense. And all these kind of patterns and stories, you know, fit together. And I was trying to think about, oh, that does make sense. So we are in hell. And I kind of felt like, okay, I just have to to get through this and just to to go through whatever it is that we are destined to go through. The voice of God here, was it saying anything about Cato? Oh, yes. So one of the things was the voice said that my husband would be responsible for killing Cato. And that Cato had to die, but that was his punishment, um, my husband's punishment. And... Yes, I would have to be the one to help my husband process his guilt. Catherine, I, I just couldn't imagine having those thoughts. I mean, had you ever experienced thoughts like this before in your life? No, never. I mean, I guess that's the kind of shocking thing is I was very lucky in that I never had any mental health, um, really, ever. So it was a completely foreign experience for me. So how did you end up going to the hospital? My husband could tell, obviously, that something was really wrong. I was, you know, I was calling my brother and talking to him about all these different things, and I was just not acting myself. And at that point, my memories are a bit blurry, but he basically, he called his parents and asked them to pick up our son, to take him home. And he then he just immediately drove me to the emergency room because he didn't know what was going on. Were you telling James what you were hearing at that time? So no, I didn't. I, I didn't tell him anything about that just because I didn't want to scare him. I understand. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't want to terrify him that we were in hell. So I was just like, he's going to figure this out. <laughs> I'll just let him figure it out. <laughs> at the hospital, Catherine was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, thought to be brought on by hormone shifts and sleep deprivation. She spent four days in the emergency ward where she was clearly losing her mind rapidly. Her thoughts were chaotic, she was tearing at her clothes, and she was seeing demons. Her husband, James, didn't have a choice. He signed Catherine over to the care of the New Jersey Psychiatric Facility. Catherine was heavily medicated, and she had become completely detached from reality. It's a very confused period in my head. I thought I was in hell, obviously, and in a simulation, so... I have memories of, you know, the different nurses, and I have memories of different things, but then I also have memories of things that couldn't possibly have happened because I had lost all sense of time. And, you know, the room kept shifting, you know, people's faces were changing. Sometimes I was me, sometimes I thought I was my son or my husband or my mother. Mm. You know, I, I completely was unmoored from what was real. 
What was it like being in that ward with other people who were struggling with their own mental health issues? It was such a surreal experience because I basically, after they had moved me, I went into a complete uh, mental break. So I, I thought I was being surrounded by animals. I had, you know, stripped off all my clothes. I was urinating on the floor. They sedated me. And I think it was basically two days later or something that I woke up in this room and I, I genuinely had very little sense of who I was or what I was doing there. And it, you know, it's like a scene from a film and that it's a white room, it's blank, you know, and you have these fragmented memories, but you're not quite sure what's actually happened. And I remember just getting up and kind of falling in line with what was going on outside of the room, which was that in this ward, there were around maybe 20 of us, men and women, everybody going through their own thing. And we're all just kind of have appeared in this place and are meant to follow the rules and wait until we're released. After the break, Catherine talks about how holding on to memories of everyday things, like a cup of tea, helped give her some hope and belief that someday she would recover. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. Catherine's deep spiral into madness landed her in psychiatric care. She spent three months trying to recover from postpartum psychosis. Life on a psychiatric ward takes a little getting used to. And for Catherine, time seemed slow and stretched. A day seemed like an eternity. In an attempt to hold on to the person she was before the breakdown, Catherine started to make a list of all the things she missed. I made lots of lists. So my husband had left a notebook for me and a pen, and he was very insistent to the nurses that I I have it. So I made a list of things that I knew were true, and then I also made a list of things that just reminded me that there was joy and stuff that was outside. So, you know, whether it was a cup of coffee or tea, being able to listen to the radio, the little things really were the things I desperately missed. Was Cato on that list? So he he wasn't. I, at that point, you know, I did try to think about Cato just because I knew that I should. I guess, you know, we, at that point, I hadn't seen him. I guess it had been almost a a little over a week, but it was really difficult to think about him because I couldn't really remember him and I couldn't picture him either. So everyone there is is trying to get out of there, um, you know, and I'm sure in their way of doing that, they're trying to appear normal uh, to the doctors. How did you impress your doctor, that you were better? 
Yes, that, that's probably one of the strangest things is I started trying to think about how could I act sane to show that I was sane. I realized that we were being monitored all the time. And so I tried to act as calmly as possible. There was one of the other patients and he told me, you know, the fastest way to get out of here is to act like you don't want to leave. And I was like, okay, that, that really makes sense. The reverse psychology, right? Yeah. Yes, the reverse psychology. I just tried to act like I was completely okay and calm with the situation and try to just seem like I was happy to be in the therapy and kind of just as, you know, easy as possible. I suppose that was my, my goal. And did it work? I actually, I think so, because so at one point, the doctor met with me and with my husband at the same time. And James had basically told her he didn't think I was well. And I was furious because I just was like, how come he can't see that if he says that I'm going to stay here longer? But I acted as calmly as possible. And I just said, I remember I told her specifically that, you know, my husband's a perfectionist. And, you know, of course, you know, I, you know, I have a way to go, but I feel completely like myself. And I remember James told me later that the doctor kind of took my word for it over his. They they listened to me in that sense, I suppose. Knowing that he was telling the doctors his concerns, were you nervous about going back to the hotel? You know, I I felt completely like myself. And in retrospect, I realized I was wrong. He was right. So no, I, I didn't feel worried. I felt kind of like, okay, I felt stable. Yeah. You said you felt stable. Were the voices gone? Was the voice of God gone? The demons, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I think that's the reason why is I no longer heard any voices. I didn't, you know, I was experiencing time as everyone else does in a linear way. There were moments where I would have like a moment where I was, I thought maybe like, I remember thinking the receptionist, her eyes looked a little weird, you know, like that kind of thing. And then I'd be concerned like, oh gosh, you know, like, is it coming back? But I felt stable in the sense that I knew, or I felt I knew, that I could differentiate between what was reality and what wasn't. After three weeks, Catherine was released into her husband's care. James now had to figure out how to safely move his wife and Cato back home to London. He had to assess how Catherine would react to living outside of the psychiatric ward. Despite doctors' reassurances, James was still worried. When you held Cato for the first time after not seeing him for a while, how did that feel? So my parents brought Cato, I think it was my second day out of the ward. And yeah, it, it felt really unfamiliar and to be honest, physically painful. I, I had a really difficult time holding him. I just wanted to give him back straight away. Physically painful. Um, how does that, I mean, I guess describe what it's like. I couldn't imagine it feeling physically painful to hold a child. It really felt wrong to me. It felt like I shouldn't be touching him. I shouldn't be holding him. And I think it's probably a protection mechanism. That's how I've at least explained it to myself afterward because I think a lot of women who go through postpartum psychosis feel this way. It just it just felt like I shouldn't be holding him and I just couldn't like do it. So I remember I held him for maybe a second and then I just I handed him back to my father. Did James and and your other family members did they trust you caring for Cato? So 
No, I mean, James never said it explicitly, but he never left me alone with Cato. And I think he partly did it out of a kindness as well because he knew it was difficult for me. And I was really honest about that. I just said, I, I can't. So he never left me alone with Cato, I think, for a very long time, for many months, actually. This kind of begs the question, how was James doing at this time? Because this is a lot for him to deal with. Yes. I think he went into a full kind of adrenaline-fueled state where he had to drop everything in terms of work and kind of, you know, for him it was terrifying because he didn't know what was happening. He didn't know if I was going to get better. He didn't, you know, there was so much uncertainty. He felt really helpless. You know, he was just constantly trying to figure things out. So recovery was very slow. At some point you fell into a depression. How did that affect you? We came back to London and I was starting to feel better. My antipsychotic medication was lowered and that was, you know, a relief because I could, you know, I had trouble sitting still or looking at light. And this is apparently very common in the sense that most people who go through psychosis then go through a depression. But for me, it was a complete shock. Um, and I think it was three weeks after we came back, I just couldn't get out of bed. It was a very deep clinical depression. A lot of people can relate to depression, but after everything you've gone through, how did that affect you? In many ways, I felt like the depression was the most difficult aspect, just because, you know, I, I'd never experienced anything like it. It was so physical. I physically couldn't lift my limbs. I couldn't sit up. I just felt like just darkness, and it didn't feel like it would ever get better. And that's, I think, the most kind of dangerous and, you know, disturbing part of it is that feeling of this is never going to go away. And I was like that for over, I think it was almost three months where I just, I just couldn't function. Wow, three months is a long time. Yeah, yes, it, it, it felt unending for sure. Did it bother you at, the, at that time that James was now the the main caregiver for you and Cato? It, it did because I felt a lot of guilt. We were very lucky in that, you know, his workplace was very understanding. They let him cut back his hours. They actually, they even um, paid for a nanny to come to take care of Cato. But I, I could see it taking a toll on him where, you know, he's basically trying to take care of me, but then also trying to take care of, you know, a five-month-old baby by himself. How did you start to pull yourself out of this dark hole? I think, you know, there are many things. So the medications, I was put on an antidepressant. The NHS here has something called the crisis team. So they, they came to our flat every day to check in on me and they would always give me a task. So I, I spent a lot of time writing lists again and kind of they asked me to make a list of tasks that I could try to do every day, like very basic things. And I also kept a gratitude list, so just a list of things to be grateful for. And I think very, very slowly, all those things started to become easier, and I could spend more time out of bed, and I could kind of feel, I guess, awake again, I suppose. That's the closest feeling. I felt awake, but then I knew that it would be temporary and that, you know, but eventually those stays were longer than the other days. What did that list look like? What were you grateful for? 
It would be very basic things from, you know, grateful for being in my own bed, having my own sheets, to grateful that I have James, you know, grateful that it was sunny today, you know, grateful that I was able to have a cup of tea or brush my hair, things like that. What did it take to make you feel more like your old self? To be honest, it just took time. So when I was finally able to kind of sit up in a chair without feeling physically in pain and actually notice that there was light outside the window, then I realized, you know, I'm actually getting better, that I'm, I'm actually myself. Can you remember the first time you could play with Cato and, and feel good and not feel anxious? I think that also happened gradually. So part, I guess part of the daily tasks were that I should try to spend at least 10 minutes a day playing with Cato which sounds so short now, but at the time it just felt impossible. But I remember, you know, as it became summer, so I could have him on my lap, you know, I could play with him and, you know, I I could touch him without feeling like the sense that I shouldn't be touching him. Were you scared at first, you know, when you were playing with him? And It wasn't that I felt scared. It was just I felt very distant. I felt so distant from him and just, you know, he could have been anybody's baby, but also it just didn't feel right. It was very gradual for me to feel like a connection to him again. And I just had to make it almost a practice, like an intention that I would, you know, do this and that I would become more like a parent for him. So how old is he now? He's three now. Wow. What's uh, what's he like? He's very cute. He's very sweet. He's very stubborn. Yeah, we have an amazing relationship now. I would say, you know, he was really close to James before, but now it's more 50-50. But he's, uh, you know, obsessed with dinosaurs and trains, and he's a very happy, a happy kid. So am I, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, with all the struggles you had, you decided to have a second child. Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was a big decision to make, I, I'll be honest, because... The statistics aren't particularly in my favor. If you've had postpartum psychosis, you have a 50% chance of recurrence. And I think when James heard that, he just said, okay, there's no way. (laughs) We talked about it a lot and we analyzed, you know, the reasons why it had happened the first time. And I thought a lot about all that uncertainty, all that fear. And I, I don't think I would feel that way this time. And as much as, you know, I think, as I say, Cato is such a joy for, for me and for James. I was just thinking, you know, if we're lucky enough to have another one, then, you know, I would really want to accept that and, and you know, have another kid. Aside from your own experience, what did you learn about postpartum psychosis that could help other listeners understand it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, those stories that you read in the media, and particularly the famous ones, are so sensationalized and horrifying. You know, they it usually is, you know, a mother has done something really terrible to her children or to herself. And I think psychosis in general is a very frightening thing for many people because it it comes with such sort of violence and, you know, that kind of connotation. But I suppose 
something that I learned a lot about is that there are so many degrees to it. So it can be anything from postpartum anxiety. So there are a lot of women who have this fear that maybe something bad will happen mm. to their child or that, you know, they might be responsible for something bad. And I think the thing that I would hope people would understand is that it's really not in your control. It, it's a combination of hormones, environment. It's a combination of that identity shift when you have a baby. And the best thing to do is to be honest. Because I think there's so many people who do maybe feel those things, but then they hide it because they're afraid of it or they have a sense of shame about it. And I would say, you know, of course, my case was very extreme but I suppose if you have any feeling like that, then the best thing to do is is to to try to share it and try to to get help, you know. What would you say to other women who are struggling with motherhood, either with or without postpartum? I do say this to any of my friends who have babies: is just to be kind to yourself, and you know, no matter how many times. It might seem someone else is having an easier time. Everything looks picture perfect. It's difficult. Just because so many people have babies doesn't make it less difficult. It's a really hard thing to do, to have a baby. You also have to remember that you have a self too and that you should be taking care of yourself because if you take care of yourself, then you can take care of a baby as well. At the time of this interview, Catherine was nine months pregnant and about to give birth. What she said about the possibilities of postpartum psychosis recurring worried me a little bit. And I wondered, could the same thing happen again? There's no way I could just leave it there. So we reached out to Catherine just to make sure mother and baby are well. She sent me this voice memo. <laughs> oh, bless you. Hi Vic, it's Catherine. I'm doing very well. I had a baby girl. Her name is Cora. Everything went smoothly with the delivery and the recovery and yeah, even though we've been in lockdown, it's been really lovely. James, Cato um, have been adjusting and yeah, it's, it's all been very positive. Back from Broken is a show about how we are all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you think you're struggling with postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Joe Erickson. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn more about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.